0: Good morning, it's Monday the 16th of October and this is Govind Raj coming to you from a fairly smogged out Mumbai and also India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day Markets and oil turn nervous as Israel threatens ground invasion of Gaza India imports tomatoes from Nepal but does not reciprocate with rice Smugglers take over Inflation is down to 5%, was it by accident or design? And what is the prognosis then? 130,000 people in person and 35 million people online watch the India Pakistan match. What's next after this grand show? And a Unilever man becomes the Prime Minister of New Zealand.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj Etiraj.
0: Markets and oil turn nervous. Markets are now bracing for a difficult week as investors grapple between multiple signals ranging from a potentially widening war in the Middle East and thus oil prices rising up and then interest rates. On Friday the 13th, the Indian markets ended down. The Sensex was down 126 points at 66,283 and the Nifty was down 43 points at 19,751. For the week though, the Sensex was positive up 287 points. The market seemed to be more directionless at this point rather than nervous, which would of course be quite understandable, though we have to see how the week or even the first few days of the week pan out. More results or corporate results are expected this week as we are in the midst of second quarter earnings season. We've already discussed IT company results last week, which have disappointed the street. Now, oil is a matter of concern. Brent crude was up almost 6% on Friday, crossing $90 a barrel and closer to $91 a barrel, after investors appear to be considering a worsening of the crisis in the Middle East and the Israel-Hamas war. Last week, actually, oil prices held their ground on the fact that there was no supply impact caused by the present conflict. But a larger war, including the likely ground invasion we talked about as opposed to the air invasion so far by Israel of Gaza, is increasing nervousness. Back in India, foreign portfolio investors have pulled out about 10,000 crore rupees from Indian equities this month thanks to increasing US bond yields. The Indian rupee is low but against a strong dollar which is affecting many currencies also because of high interest rates or the likelihood of them going up further in the United States and of course treasury yields or bonds that the government sells. The rupee ended at 83.26 on Friday, that's down for the third consecutive week. India's forex reserves are falling by the way last week they were down for the fifth consecutive week to 584 billion this was in itself nothing to worry about but contrast that with its all time high of 645 billion dollars in October 2021 now a story of tomatoes and rice coming up is also policy r except that it's not an r and it's not about policy alone Else I know, this is when you'll switch to some top 20 music selection. On July twenty, India banned exports of non-Basmati rice, the rice most Indians eat wherever they are in the world. India controls about 40% of global rice exports, so this has hit several countries badly. Stated or not, the reason was the perception that unpredictable monsoons might hit rice output and thus prices, not the best thing to happen ahead of the festival season and of course later state elections. A few weeks later, a fresh order was issued, this time to fix a floor price for Basmati rice exports because of the suspicion, apparently, that exporters were exporting non-Basmati rice as Basmati rice. So what should have been going for, let's say, $1,200 a tonne, which is the floor price by the way, was actually going for $300 a tonne, which means they could not have been exporting non-Basmati rice or Basmati rice at that price, and hence the floor. Anyway, Indian ingenuity. But then there is no end to it. Of ingenuity, that is. A flourishing smuggling operation is apparently opened up on the India-Nepal border where dozens of carriers take 10 kilograms of rice each across largely open borders and sell them for a premium on the other side. Ram Prasad, a rice carrier, told the Press Trust of India, or PTI, that the Nepali merchants have set up small warehouses along the border where they deliver the smuggled rice. The warehouses are emptied every week and the collected rice is moved to a bigger warehouse. The carriers do most of the work at the crack of dawn, travelling up to one kilometer from their homes to deliver the rice and they carry rice bags weighing 10 kilograms or more. And this reason becomes worthwhile because rice prices shot up 3-4 to four times in Nepal after India's export ban. Officials told PTI that more than 111 tonnes of rice being smuggled into Nepal has been seized by the SSB or the Sahastra Sima a paramilitary force and police in recent months. Amazingly, Earlier, India reached out to Nepal to send us tomatoes, which they did. Remember, in late July and early August, tomatoes were selling at 300 rupees per kilogram and thereabouts in some cities. And then, towards end August and early September, they were being dumped on the roads. Anyway, Nepal did help at that crucial moment with some tomato consignments. But it doesn't appear, at least to me, that India reciprocated with rice. Kathmandu Post reported in mid-August that Nepal had formally asked the Indian government to make an exception and unshackled grain and sugar shipments to Nepal in view of the upcoming festive season, which is of course the same as India. The year before, Nepal had imported about 1.4 million tons of rice from India. We requested the Indian government through the foreign ministry to supply grains and sugar. We are yet to hear from our southern neighbor, said Ram Chandra Tiwari, Joint Secretary of the Industry Ministry, to the Kathmandu Post in the middle of August. Now, India did announce towards the end of August it was starting to ship selectively on a country-to-country level, but it did so to Singapore, Mauritius and even Bhutan. There was an exemption made for the UAE or the United Arab Emirates, which includes Dubai, but that came in the last week of September, which almost brings us to the present. And Nepal is not part of this list for reasons I'm not aware. Hence, presumably the smugglers are having a field day, quite literally. Speaking of smuggling, imports, and flip-flops, on the 3rd of August, the government announced that all laptop imports would be banned and sent everyone, including obviously laptop manufacturers like Apple, Samsung, Lenovo, and HP, into a tizzy, more for the suddenness of the announcement rather than the intent. Since that announcement, the government has been walking backwards, almost step by step, as everyone watches. The Commerce Ministry has now said that there are no restrictions as such on imports of laptops and that they would only be monitoring. Which is, of course, strange, as I would expect that they would be monitoring earlier as well, if nothing else, at least for the data. Anyway, Commerce Secretary Sunil Bhartwal told news agencies that importers of laptop devices would be on a close watch in terms of the import source and that there are no restrictions on laptop imports. When he says close watch on import source, he obviously refers to China, which was also another ostensible reason for that ban on laptop imports. Tires don't tire. Speaking of smuggling and imports, an ostensible and perhaps rightful reason like I just mentioned for the laptop ban, at least in thought if not execution, was to obviously slow down imports including from China. Now, this approach has obviously worked in other industries, so much so that the more than a century-old Japanese tire maker Yokohama, for instance, has said that they are betting on local production in India for a sustainable and competitive business model in the country, according to India's CEO Harinder Singh. Yokohama Rubber Company, which has been in India since 2007, is coming up with a new plant in Vishakhapatnam, in addition to its existing one in Bahadurgarh, Haryana. Harinder Singh said that while we still import certain high-end tyres, like run-flat tyres commonly found on luxury vehicles from our overseas manufacturing bases, our commitment to localising production in India is unwavering. And that must be surely music to the government's ears, where he says that the company supports the government's decision to ban tyre imports into the country. Yokohama India, supports this decision and recognizes the importance of investing in local production which reduces costs, lead times, and dependency on imports, making it more sustainable, he said. And in 2020, the government had imposed curbs on imports of certain new pneumatic tires used in cars, buses, lorries, and motorcycles in a move obviously to promote domestic manufacturing. Tire companies can now only import a small number of tires into the country, but under a limited import license, which was not the case before 2020. So if it worked for tires, it should surely work for laptops. I guess it will take a little longer and then everyone will fall in line. Meanwhile, the other number that's fallen in line is inflation. Inflation numbers last week were a surprise for all, coming in at about 5.02% of just 5%. In contrast to the 6.83% in August, this was a steep fall indeed. Food prices fell, by the way, from a 26% inflation level in August to just 3.4% in September. Cereals were a little lower too, at about 11% as compared to 11.85% in the previous month. Pulses, which include the dals, were higher, though at 16.3% as compared to 13% in August. Cereals, by the way, include rice and wheat. Now adding it up, it's obvious that falling vegetable prices were an important reason for inflation going down. The question of course now is will it hold and how? Or retrospectively, how much of this fall was because of accident or design? And more importantly, to what extent does this lower inflation reflect the effective use of tools and strategy on the part of the government and to what extent is it driven by external factors? I reached out to Crystal Chief Economist DK Joshi and I began by asking him whether this i.e. the fall in inflation was just a flash in the pan.
2: Well, I think it was like a speed breaker that you see on the roads. I mean, it goes up and then comes up. So it was indeed led by a very volatile component of food, which is vegetables. So what we are seeing right now, I think the 5% inflation print for September, many components of inflation come down. Vegetables is clearly one which brought the food inflation down. And actually, tomato inflation was crushed to minus 21.4 percent, I think, as supplies uh, entered the market. But it's obviously not so good news for farmers. Fuel inflation also was minus 0.1 percent. And that is because I think the cooking gas prices were brought down. And interestingly, core inflation, which is obtained after stripping food and fuel from overall inflation, also fell to 4.5 percent. So it was, in a way, a broad-based decline in uh, in inflation. But nobody is expecting this 5% to continue. I mean, even RBI has an overall forecast of 5.4% for the full year, and we are at 5.5%. And the central bank itself believes that in the third quarter, which is October to December, inflation will rise to 5.7%, then eventually soften to 5.2%. So clearly, this was, in a way, I think uh, the extreme pressure on inflation corrected, but I think there are some underlying pressures which will continue.
0: So would this be attributed or would you attribute this to strategy or more happenstance?
2: Well, I think vegetables is clearly the most volatile component. It has a short crop cycle. And these ups and downs we have already seen. But I think having said that, I think even within the food category, cereal inflation is close to 11%. And I think the weather-related issues are still playing out. Protein inflation actually moved up to 8.3% in September. It was 68 in August. And protein is essentially vegetable. Proteins are seeing a much higher inflation. I think Turdan inflation is at a little over 37%. And inflation in eggs and meat and fish also eased up a little bit. Quite They're quite distance from the double digits, I think. So they are in lower single digits. And I think on the fuel front, Despite inflation coming down, I think there is uh, the oil prices have been bumping up. And I think the most recent development is the Israel-Gaza conflict, which is bumping up the oil prices. And then core inflation, I think if input costs remain high, and fuel is one of the input costs, then I think core inflation, which came down, can also firm up. So you need to be very watchful of various components.
0: Right. I'll come to prognosis in a second. But before that, so would you say that the various tools that the government has been using to keep down prices, for example, at one level, ban on non-Basmati rice exports, wheat, of course, exports were banned last year itself. Then the prospect that other commodities like sugar exports might be banned or other tools that they've been using, is that working or is it more because, you know, the monsoon pattern suddenly shifted again, there was a excess of rains in September, and therefore everything came under control?
2: Well, I think the vegetable inflation is not related to any from the government. I think it is, as I said, it's a short crop cycle. But there's some decline in inflation in cereals, I think, which could be attributed partly to the restriction of sports. But the pulses is inflation. I think where we are trying to ramp up the supply, I think, went up actually in September, but it didn't come down. So it's a mixed set of factors.
0: So looking at what we've been through, including this spike and then sudden decline, what's the prognosis here on uh, what could happen? And if something happens, then what could be a strategic response? If so?
2: Well, there are too many moving parts. As I said, I think you mentioned about sugar. Now, sugar is also, the sugarcane is also used for ethanol, I mean, biofuel. So maybe they might divert less of that to biofuel if, so that could be one response. The second, I think, would be restricting exports. I think we haven't restricted exports in the last five, six years, if I remember correctly. I think, but that could be on the table if there is a situation. So you have to keep assessing on a regular basis because there are too many moving parts. As I said, I think the food, there are stickier parts of food inflation which, despite government efforts, haven't come down very sharply. I think so there is some stickiness there. And then I think there are factors which we don't control. I mean, oil, for instance, I think you can hardly do anything to that. I mean, except maybe restrict passing it on to the end consumer. But it will definitely pass on to the industries. The fertilizers will become expensive. So I think what is interesting is that this will be supply shock if it plays out. The demand in the global economy is coming down. That should not put pressure on prices. It's a kind of a different situation. I mean, it's not demand-led. It's more of a supply or a war or whatever. I think those are the issues that we need.
0: DK, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you. It's always a pleasure.
0: Record numbers. Watch the India-Pakistan match. The World Cup has still some way to go and things will start only hotting up at the semifinals in this roughly six-week tournament or so, I think. The biggest match to watch was, however, the India-Pakistan match in Ahmedabad on Saturday last week, which was seen by over a record 130,000 people in person in Narendra Modi Stadium in the city and some 35 million people online. Numbers for television audiences are still awaited. So will this strong showing of audiences and viewers continue? which will also be a reflection of the monetization strength of the current series and the predictions towards it, including the 20000 crore figure that Bank of Baroda Research computed. I reached out to noted sports and cricket journalist and commentator Ayaz memon and I began by asking him what was next now that the grand India-Pakistan match was over.
1: The way the tournament has been formatted, the World Cup, is that there is a spate of league matches. There are 10 teams, so each team plays 9 matches. And then four teams go into the semi-finals. Now, India have won three matches out of three so far. So, they are very well placed to get into the semi-finals. But, as we know, in the past two World Cups, also India reached the semi-finals and then kind of stumbled there. So, that's the big concern for India. That getting into the semi-finals is, in a sense, I think, is more or less certain. You know, barring the glorious uncertainties of cricket. But... Once you reach the semi-finals, you have to make sure that you don't take another tumble like you did in 2015 and 2019.
0: Right. And what are the other
1: matches that you're looking out for, Ayaz, at this point? Look, Australia has been struggling very badly. They've been five times former champions. They've lost two earlier matches. They've got a match coming up against Sri Lanka on Monday. So if they don't do well in that, then they could actually have a premature exit from the tournament. Remember, Australia, England and India were... Not necessarily in that order. I think India, England and Australia were favoured to get into the semis with the fourth team being either Pakistan or New Zealand and South Africa as the dark horses. But if Australia failed to beat Sri Lanka, then I think that they might well be on their way out because if you lose three matches in a row, basically these big teams, when I say big teams, I mean India, Australia, England, Pakistan, New Zealand, they have to win five matches out of nine. If they win five matches out of nine, they get into the semis. Now, obviously, all five six of them can't get into the semi. Somebody has to drop out, a couple of teams. And if Australia lose three in a row, then it looks likely that they will have to kind of, you know, take an early ticket back home.
0: So, when will we know all of this, Ayaz? That most of, as in,
1: in terms of the major part of this ordering or equation, I think in the next eight ten days, because it's a long tournament, it's a six week long tournament, and it's just been about a week since it really kind of got started. So, I think by the end of next week, maybe a little beyond that, but certainly a crucial match coming up for Australia, which is against Sri Lanka tomorrow, which is Monday. If they don't win that, then they are on a slippery slope. Some good things have also happened in the sense, in terms of the excitement. South Africa have done really well in the tournament so far. Nobody expected them to do so well, but they've come along very strongly. So, I'll be watching their progress with great interest. So, to England and also Pakistan. Remember, Pakistan have won two matches before they lost to India. So they've got four points. Their net run rate isn't too bad. And if they fare well in the remaining matches, they could still aim to be in the semi-finals. But again, after such a thrashing from India, how much it has affected their morale, how good will they be in the next match, all that remains to be seen. So these are some of the teams that you keep tracking to know which 14 will make it into the semis.
0: Right. And last question I asked, so as there was a big buildup on the revenue and the business side, you know, the one prediction was that it's worth almost 20,000 crores, including the sponsorships that have already been signed and all the ticket sales and all the spending that people would do buying online food. So obviously it must have gone in that direction, at least for the India-Pakistan match. But does it look like we're on track For the rest of the season as well? I mean, just your sense?
1: Look, I think a lot depends on how India fares going ahead. The India matches are the big draws. I mean, you had 130,000 people at the Narendra Modi Stadium against Pakistan. But you didn't have such a big crowd against Australia in Chennai. And even against Afghanistan in Delhi. So, wherever India plays, I think, and because India's form has been so strong, it's going to attract a lot of the fans and spectators to to come in. But if India starts stumbling, then obviously everything else gets affected. The ticket sales, the sponsorship, you know, and all the collateral income that can come in can take a hit. But frankly, I don't see that happening because this Indian team looks damn good. And, you know, if you've already won three matches, then your fate could be decided about a place in the semifinals in the next two matches or not till the last match. So I think there'll be a lot of support for the Indian team almost till their last league match.
0: Right. Ayas, thank you so much for joining me and we'll surely catch up with you in the next week. Thanks, Govind. Take care. Bye-bye. And a Unilever man becomes New Zealand Prime Minister. And before I go, just three years after entering politics, former businessman Christopher Luxon is set to lead New Zealand to the right as Prime Minister-elect ending six years of Labour-led centre-left government. Luxon was earlier CEO of Air New Zealand and became the leader of the National Party at the end of 2021, boosting its popularity until winning Saturday's general election, according to Bloomberg. Luxon has held senior roles in global consumer goods firm Unilever, and he said that he would use the skills he brought to managing businesses to improve New Zealand. He worked for 18 years for Unilever in Australia, Britain, Canada and the United States before returning home to lead Air New Zealand and his last job in Unilever was as CEO of the Canadian operation. Luxon said, I'm a person who likes to bring teams together and make sure that I get the best out of them and use all the skills in that team. So that's my mode. The Guardian quotes him saying he spent time with consumers everywhere he went, a classic Unilever approach to market immersion for juniors and seniors alike. A millionaire father of two with several homes across the country, he is now apparently learning the Maori language and is a Taylor Swift fan, quoting her in televised debates and interviews. That's it from me for now. Have a great week ahead. This was the Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in, that is www.thecore.in, or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at Thank you for listening.